a look at where President Biden's Supreme Court nominee is on guns, and an interview with former NRA board member Joaquin Marshall. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can pick up a membership today if you want exclusive access to dozens of well-reported stories and analysis pieces on firearms news throughout the country. It's something you will not find anywhere else, no matter how hard you look. And if you become a member, you'll also get early access to this podcast, as well as the opportunity to appear on the show. If you would like, it's one of my favorite segments that we do, the members interviews. We learn a little bit more about the people who make the reload possible because we are an independent and a completely reader funded operation here. Uh, so, yeah, uh, if you if you ha- are a member and you get the Sunday newsletter, just reply to that and let me know uh, and we'll have you on. Uh, love to do that. Anyway, this week. We're going to be talking about the situation at the NRA. There was a big development, uh, and we actually have a former NRA board member on, uh, somebody who's been at the center of a lot of the fights uh, internally and externally over there at the NRA. Uh, his name is Rocky Marshall. Rocky, welcome to the show. Can you, can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself before we begin? Yeah, sure, Stephen. Hey, um, so I'm, I'm a um, 40 years in the industry. I'm a business guy. I own a... Um, a manufacturing company here in Texas uh, for the last 20 years. I'm the founder CEO. Uh, we make truck accessories and we distribute those throughout the United States and Canada. Um, you can check us out. Frontier Truck Gear is the name of the company. And before that, I was uh, 18 years. I was um, a division president for a Fortune 150 company. Uh, you can look my background up on online and you can find out all that stuff there. Uh, I'm an avid hunter shooter. Um, we, we own a ranch here in Texas and we have we actually have a gun range here that we shoot at with my, my boys and, and our family. And, and um, I got appointed to the NRA, I guess that was in January of 2021 when a uh, board member had resigned and I was appointed to replace that board member and my term expired. Um, I guess it was in September of 2021 is my last month there. So I've been on that NRA board. I've been on other boards. I've been, you know, chief, um, chairman of the board for other boards, uh, large boards and small boards. So I have some experience working with board of directors and, and that's my background. Okay. Wonderful. And, uh, just to give people a little bit of insight, uh, as far as where you stand in this whole, uh, internal debate over Wayne LaPierre, the, the C, um, the CEO and, and executive vice president of the NRA and some of these allegations of corruption against him and others. Uh, and there's, there's this New York lawsuit that's, uh, has been seeking to shut down the organization. I uh, just want to give a little bit of background about what's been going on. You joined the intervention attempt in the bankruptcy that the NRA tried to uh, go through, um, looking to establish an independent court-appointed examiner to go through the finances of the group. And then also recently, af- after uh, you weren't renominated to the board, uh, which we can get into a little bit of that, the politics of that as well. Right. Uh, but uh, you filed another intervention attempt in the New York case where the attorney general, Letitia James, who's a Democrat and a political opponent of the NRA has been sh- uh, attempting to shut down the organization. Uh, just so, so obviously you are a, a critic of the way the group has been run um, and you 
while you were on the board, you attempted to change some of the, the things that the group does. Is that, is that a fair assessment? That, that's a good assessment. Yes, that's correct. And so uh, the big development this week is that uh, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, her attempt to shut down the group, to dissolve it completely over these accusations of corruption and uh, self-dealing and, and so forth, that was thrown out by a judge, by the New York judge. So there's no longer a possibility that the NRA won't exist because of, of this case at the end of it. What is your reaction to, to that development? Yeah, so I think, you know, that was kind of a shock. I didn't, I didn't expect that to see that this soon in this case. I mean, it hasn't, the trial has not started. They're still gathering data and, and doing depositions and so forth. Um, so that was a surprise to me. It's great news for the NRA and for the members of the NRA because it really removes that big threat that uh, Letitia James and the New York AG had put out there that she wanted to dissolve the NRA. Uh, and so that the judge wisely, I think, just took that off the table. That's not an issue. The, the NRA is not going to be dissolved here. And, and I think that the focus now of this trial will be really on the wrongdoing. Anybody that was involved with some of the wrongdoing and the malfeasance, that is going to be dealt with in this trial. And um, those those issues will come to light. But so I think it's great news for the NRA that that issue has really been been um, put away with. Right. And so so that's interesting, right? Because uh, obviously the NRA leadership, um, William Brewer, the, the NRA's counsel, is also very happy about this outcome, uh, naturally. Uh, and right. so uh, this also aligns with what what your goals were. You, you didn't want to see the NRA shut down, right, and have its assets distributed by the New York attorney general who, you know, who, who knows where she would have uh, recommended that the, the NRA's money be sent, but uh, what what was the outcome that you, that you want? Like, what, what are you trying to get to for the NRA? So the reason I did the intervention on the New York AG case was at that point in time, no one was representing the members. Uh, the New York AG was trying to dissolve the NRA and, and, and basically destroy it. I felt like uh, the Bill Brewer law firm really, they, they were trying to protect management. They were really representing management. They're not representing members in this issue. And so the purpose of the intervention from, from my part was to try to be a voice for members to have someone in this case telling the judge that the NRA is important. It's important to the second amendment. It's important to free speech. It's important to all the, you know, four and a half million members that are part of the NRA. It's an important, important issue for us. And, um, I wanted to be that voice, and and that was the reason I, I I tried to intervene in the case. Right, and ultimately the judge decided not to let you intervene, uh, partially because you're no longer on the board. You were on the board when you filed to intervene, but you're not on it anymore now. Right. Uh, just to can you explain to me and the audience a little bit about the nomination process. Like, why aren't you on the board? Why weren't you even on the the ballot for reelection? Okay, so so I was appointed to replace a board member in January, and so I, I served, I guess it was nine or 10 months on the board, and I really became, I guess, a problem for the, the board of directors and also for the NRA management because I was a, a pretty outspoken critic, as you well know. So I, I, I sent lots of correspondence to the entire board highlighting a lot of the problems that have, have shown up in the press that you see in news articles, but you also see it in the filing that the New York AG made. So um, 
that was not really popular with a lot of the board members. So the process is the nominating committee tightly controls who gets nominated to be included on the ballot that goes out in the, uh, the National Rifleman magazine. And that's how you get elected. Well, so when my name, I, obviously it was a lot of members, you know, requested I be included, but the nominating committee only picks those few that they want to include. And I was uh, not selected by the nominating committee, which means my name would not be on the ballot. And it wasn't on the ballot to be reelected. Right. And so I guess essentially what you're saying there is effectively the board gets to decide who is allowed to run for the board. There is a, I guess there's a mechanism around this. Uh, like Frank Tate is somebody who's who actually successfully peti- got petitions, signatures right. to get on the ballot uh, this year. Uh, who's who's another uh, critic of of Wayne Lapierre and leadership and wants to see Wayne uh, resign. But but effectively, the vast majority of people who end up on the NRA ballot, they go through that nominating committee process. Is that right? Correct. Well, yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, Frank, I don't. We need to research that. He may be the only person that I know of that ever was able to get on the ballot via petition because you need so many petition signatures and they have to be life members. And I, I think it's an excess of a thousand members that you have to get on petition. And Frank was able to pull all that together. And I hope that, that, you know, people listening to this podcast will vote for Frank and vote for Frank only on the, on that ballot. But uh, it's very difficult. If you don't go, if you're not nominated by the nominating committee, it's really hard to get on the ballot to be even considered uh, by the membership to be voted for. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people underestimate the sort of complexity of uh, internal NRA politics and how the group is actually run. For instance, if you're an NRA member, it doesn't necessarily mean you even get to vote uh, in the election of most of the board members. Uh, you have to be a right. elect member or consecutive five year member. Um, and then that's really a, it's not, uh, you know, there's four and a half to five million members. Uh, a lot of them are not eligible to actually vote in these elections. Uh, now they have a, they have a sort of solution to this kind of, there's 76, there's 75 board members that get elected through the ballot system. Correct. And there's a 76th board member that gets elected at the annual meetings. Uh, although I think they, because they've COVID's obviously messed up with a lot of things. They've had to cancel the last two annual meetings. I don't think they've been doing that election. Right. Um, but anyway, that's supposed to let the rest of the NRA membership give them some sort of form of uh, voting for at least one of the 76 board members. Right. Am I explaining that correctly? Well, no, actually, it's still being controlled by the nominating committee because that 76 board member, you, you would have had to have been on the ballot. So if, let's say you were not chosen by the, the ballot process and you, you just weren't chosen for some reason only those people that were on the ballot that were not chosen are eligible to be the 76th director. So for example, you just couldn't randomly vote for someone else that you wanted to include on the board. It has, it had to be someone that was on the board on that ballot originally. Mm. Uh, and, and also not every board member is up every year, right? They serve usually three, three year terms. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. It's usually a third. So I think it's a third of the total board that is up for reelection. So really, and then in, uh, let's say it's a scenario, right? A lot of a lot there's a lot of critics who want to remove Wayne Lapierre from leadership at the NRA, right? This is a common right. thing here. People don't like the allegations that he spent NRA money on, you know, fancy suits. Uh, or uh, although I guess uh, Ackerman McQueen was 
sort of the pass through for a lot of these things, um, the former top contractor who they actually also just reached a settlement with, but we don't know the details of, right, uh, right. but you know, uh, luxury trips, um, uh, private jet flights, yacht trips, all this stuff that we've heard uh, about and that Wayne has actually admitted to some of this uh, in the form of uh, uh, the 2019 990s, he admitted to $400,000 worth of excess benefits being paid to him and that he, I guess, was meant to pay that back uh, as almost sort of a interest-free loan, I guess would be the best way to describe that situation but of, of the things that he's like admitted to the rest of it is disputed. Of course, uh, they, they claim, you know, that they didn't, that he didn't do a lot these things or they weren't, there were reasons that justified them as business expenses. But, uh, anyway, um, uh, if you wanted to remove him, the practical process is to have two thirds of the board vote to, uh, kick him out. Right. Correct. And so in, in, in with the board as it stands now, the vast majority support uh, Wayne LaPierre, the vast majority voted for him to be executive vice president for another term at the last board meeting uh, in, in Charlotte, um, uh, where you actually were nominated to run against him for the first time in, I don't know, 30 years, right? That he's had a right. competitor. That's correct. But, <laughs> right. but uh, most people voted for Wayne. And so if you wanted to get... You wanted to get him off the board, you'd have to probably remove two thirds of the board through this ballot process, which is controlled by the board, right? right as far as who gets to be on the ballot, and then would that would take at least two years of of voting people out because only a third of the board is up each year, um, right? So I, I you know just to give sort of an impression of how uh, how complex the internal workings actually are. Um, and then you you believe uh, that you weren't renominated because you oppose Wayne's leadership. Correct. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, and that's a pretty common process. You can you can see other other um, board members that were also not renominated, like C Colonel Brown, for example. He's the editor of Soldier Fortune magazine. He was not renominated by the nominating committee and had been on the NRA board for decades. Um, because he was also outspoken about the, um, the, the management and, and some of the decisions that were made. So that's kind of a way they control the process. If you speak out, you're, you're either going to be tossed off committees if you were on a committee and you're not going to be renominated. And that's the way they control the process. And it's, it's very unfortunate for the membership that that's, that's the process. And, uh, uh so what, what is it you, you, you said you're happy with this ruling that there won't be dissolution. Right. Correct. What what do you want to see the outcome be in this New York case then? So I, I think, you know, hopefully they're going to be moving towards trial. I'm, I'm thinking uh, maybe later in the summer. But um, the, the, in order to restore the NRA to have integrity in the NRA for the membership, the wrongdoers have to be dealt with. And so I think the New York AG, that's what they're going to spend their time on. So any any of the management team or board members that were involved with, you know, misusing NRA monies or involved with contracts that may not be quite appropriate. All that has to be dealt with. And, and hopefully the New York AG will actually work on behalf of the membership now and, and reclaim those monies that were donations by members and reclaim that for the benefit of the NRA. And that, so really, I think the future of the NRA for the membership is really in the hands of the New York AG. 
uh, whether we want it to be or not, that's where we are. So I'm hoping that the, the, the judge is, is a good judge, it appears to me, and that the outcome is favorable as far as removing anyone that's done some of these things that have been discussed with the, by the New York AG and also it's in the filings. Um, all that should be dealt with by the, the courts. Interesting. And so you, uh, you were on the board, right, for for yes. several months there. You're a vocal, uh, outspoken critic of of Wayne and, and other members of leadership. How many people on the board would you think would need to be removed for for that goal that you're talking about? Yeah. So unfortunately, there the entire I got to know a lot of the board members, and and several would talk to me in private. Um, they would call me or email me, but they would not speak publicly. Uh, and so just by that interaction, when I was there, there was less than a dozen of board members that I would consider very upset with what has happened and also did not support what had happened. But it publicly in the board meetings, they would vote with the board. They would not speak out. Um, they wouldn't comment in a negative way, in which I was commenting a lot about some of the things that were going on. So there was less than less than. I'd say 12 board members. And now with this new board, I think there's even fewer. There's only, I would think five or six that, that believe that management has made mistakes and need to be taken off the NRA. Um, so there's not many, the vast majority, I would say 80% of the board supports what the NRA has done and they're not willing to make the changes necessary to correct the problems. And in your opinion, why, why do you think that is? Well, there's lots of reasons, actually. I think the um, some people there, there's there's kind of the um, the inner circle. We the people that we talk about, we call it the cabal. There's the cabal group that are very close to Wayne, and they really control the process. Um, and they're the most outspoken um, supporters, and also they kind of control the board. So there's a, probably a third of the board is that cabal group that tightly control the, the outcome. Um, there's also a third of the group that um, they don't necessarily agree with what's happened and they can see the problems. They're just not willing to do anything about it because they know if you speak out, you're going to be removed from your committee and you're not going to be renominated. And so you, you'll no longer be able to serve on the NRA board. So I think, you know, that they're being suppressed to, to just be quiet. And then there's probably a third of these board members that really are not qualified to be on a board. They don't understand the complexity of some of these issues. They don't understand financial matters. They don't understand tax fraud. They don't understand all these things. And they just, they think that the New York AG is telling lies and that it's not true, uh, which all the data supports a lot of it is true, if not all of it. So that's how I see it. There's probably three different types of board members there, but the third, the, the cabal, controls the board. The other two thirds go along with whatever that, that group is doing. Can you uh, talk a little bit more about what you mean by control the board? How, how do they control the board? The, uh, you know, there's 76 members. How right. does one third of them control the rest? Well, so if you look at the, the committee assignments, the, the same people are the chairmen or the vice chair of all the important committees. So anything that has to do with the money or the power of the board or the legislative portion of the board. If you look at that, it's all the same board members. They're generally officers in the board or they're former, you know, officers of, of the board. So it's, it's a small group 
and um, they control the meetings. So I've tried to, in some board meetings, I tried to bring a resolution, for example, to expand um, the uh, special litigation committee, which seems to be a reasonable, you know, uh, request because there's only two people on that committee. Um, and they were making decisions for the entire board. Well, that was shot down by the entire board um, because they didn't want to do that. They don't want the board involved. They want it just to be controlled by a very select few members that are highly supportive of Wayne and also the history of the NRA. So that's, that's how they control. They control all the board meetings. They control the agenda. And it's very difficult to, to deviate from the, the agenda that's been presented um, because that's the process that, they, that they're managing. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I guess uh, you're painting a very dire picture, of course, of what's going on at the NRA. Uh, well, in fact, can you speak to that a little bit? What do you, if, for instance, nothing comes of this New York case, if, if uh, the leadership wins, right, the, the Brewer law firm is able to convince the judge not to levy any sort of punishments against leadership, uh, you know, obviously they argue that there have been reforms made and that uh, this group is self-corrected and there's no need for any further action from the government side of things. If that wins the day in court, what, what do you expect uh, could happen to the NRA in, in your personal view? Okay. So yeah, keep in mind my background, I'm a business guy. And so I spent a lot of, you know, 40 years under reading financial statements and understanding how metrics work in businesses and and if you look at the metrics, the things that are important to the NRA, things like what's our total membership, you know, what's the total donations, things like that, all of those numbers are declining at a pretty rapid rate. Um, I mean, I, the NRA continually presents that they, we have 5 million members. That's not true. We don't have 5 million members. I mean, we, at one point in time, we did, but that membership base has declined quite significantly. Um, I think it's around 4.6 million or so. Um, the, the donations have dropped significantly, I, I mean, upwards of 30 to 5%, 40%. So I think the members, you know, are listening and they're reading a lot. If you read any of the, the articles out there, you read the, the documents on the reload that you put out and, and, and see so many pro-gun groups have really exposed the problems at the NRA. The membership is waking up to that. So if the New York AG, if this does not get resolved in the court, I believe the NRA is really headed for potential demise at some point in the future as members pull away and look elsewhere to try to get, you know, Second Amendment, you know, groups and and get involved with with the um, the, the things we're trying to do with with the NRA. So I don't I think it looks very dire for the NRA. And I'm hopeful that the court can help the NRA get back on track by removing the wrongdoers replacing those people with good people that can run the NRA and bring it forward. But um, the members are, I think are not going to continue to support the NRA if it's not corrected. Mm. Uh, yeah, we, we did publish uh, the 2021 August uh, financial report to the board on, on the reload. And it did show there's a 50% drop in revenue. Membership is somewhere around 4.6, 4.75 million uh, at that point in time, and services had also been cut by about fifty percent, and legal fees were had really skyrocketed, uh, right to the ten tens of millions. It was thirty one million dollars, and uh, through the first you know eight months of twenty twenty one, right, right. But uh, speaking, you know, so uh, I guess uh, the other question here 
for you as, as somebody who's tried to uh, reform things internally at the NRA, given the stakes involved that you just laid out, why haven't we seen a more effective reform group, uh, reform effort come into being with the NRA? The NRA is a very important uh, institution in the gun rights movement, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, it's, it's in your view, obviously, and I'm sure you have a lot of other people, it's going in the wrong direction. Uh, right. The numbers look bad. Uh, they're, they're caught up in this corruption prosecution. Why haven't there been the kind of forceful grassroots effort to reform the group, you think? Well, I think part of it is the, uh, the, COVID, the COVID, we'll call it the COVID years, have had a really uh, detrimental effect on the NRA members meetings, for example. Uh, uh, last year in 2021, uh, you, as you remember, uh, the NRA member meeting was canceled. It was scheduled to be in Houston. And because the COVID numbers were running pretty high, they canceled it and then had a ad hoc uh, members meeting in uh, Virginia. And so the members weren't there. I mean, I, I, uh, I know you came to that meeting, but there were- In Charlotte, yeah. Yeah, in Charlotte. Right. I actually was yeah. in Charlotte. Um, there, was, there was 150 people there. I mean, there was yeah. no one there. And so the members haven't had an opportunity uh, to really come together and voice concerns about the direction that the NRA has been on the last several years. So uh, maybe at the next members meeting, which is coming up, I think, in May in Houston, that uh, maybe the members will be outspoken and, and have an opportunity to to address some of these issues, hopefully. Um and I'd, I'd hope that that was going to happen last year and it just didn't happen. And right now I'm really kind of focused on the courts and seeing if they can turn around. The problem with the courts, that could take years. I mean, that's not going to be resolved this year. Even if the NRA loses in court, I'm assuming that they would, you know, uh, appeal that decision. And so that process could continue on for maybe two or three years, uh, maybe longer. Yeah. So. If the members are listening to this podcast, I would suggest you come to the Houston meeting in May and speak your mind. You know, if you, if you have a concern about some things that have happened, this is the, be a great time to get involved and to speak uh, what's on your heart about your about your NRA. This doesn't belong to Wayne. It doesn't belong to the officers. It belongs to you, the members. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the NRA, obviously, leadership has been vocal in um, denying these allegations uh, in, uh, well, in saying that there were issues, but they've been fixed. This is, uh, what you hear, uh, commonly from, uh, Brewer and, and other representatives of, of the NRA that there, there had been some issues, but they were fixed and that they, you know, they were suing Ackerman McQueen, the former contractor. They blamed a lot of the issues on them. They blamed issues on the former treasurer, Woody Phillips, uh, former, uh, chief of staff, um, uh, you know, they blamed a number of people. Uh, they say, you know, that, but we've fixed it now. We've put in place more safeguards internally. Um, do you believe any of that? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, it seems like you're very skeptical of all of, all of those arguments. Is that? Well, yeah, yeah. So when I first got on the board, I believed what was being presented by the NRA. You know, the, the, at that point in time, so this is January 2021. The NRA was basically saying that the New York AG is attacking the NRA and all of those accusations are untrue. So I believe that. Uh, so I spent several months uh, researching 
every one of those accusations, I was able to pull together all the former minutes to all the meetings, all the tax documents. I was able to get that from the NRA. And every accusation that I found in the New York, or, uh, the New York AG um, case, when I researched the documents, I found them to be true. I couldn't find one that wasn't true. Um, so, um, you know, I, I just feel like that I, I don't know what is going to happen to the board if, if they don't get involved in trying to change this process. But at this point in time, I just don't believe that they will. Um, they're, so you, they've don't shown, think they've, you don't think they have at all to this point? No, well, even even so, for example, like the bankruptcy filing. Um, at, the, at the first board meeting that I attended, they, um, they had already voted to file bankruptcy and they were trying to get the board to retroactively approve it. Uh, which is really odd because it had already been approved by the special litigation committee. And so what they did is they, 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 it wasn't even on the agenda. Um, they passed out the, the resolution about five minutes before the vote and it was completely inconsistent with the bylaws. So what they were trying to do uh, by filing a bankruptcy filing in, in Texas is against the bylaws because the board has to decide all that. Anything with change of charter, anything like that, that's in the bylaws. You have to follow that. They completely skirted those issues and they got the board to vote, which the board approved the bankruptcy filing. Well, uh, you can't do that. I, voted, I was the only board member who voted no because you, you can't violate the bylaws. They knew they were violating the bylaws. They didn't care. And they voted to do that anyway. And that was even called out in the in the bankruptcy case in Dallas. The judge made a note of of that the board was bypassed on the uh, bankruptcy filing. Well, that's all recent. That wasn't two years ago. This has all happened in you know last year in 2021. So there are still things that are happening at the board level. Maybe not to the same degree as in 20 you know 16, 17, 18, and 19, but they're still violating the bylaws and and. Um, the board is not operating independently as an oversight, as a fiduciary oversight of the NRA. They're just not operating that way. Now, the uh, NRA lawyers in the intervention attempt in the New York case, they put forth a theory that uh, part of the reason that you're doing this or that you tried to intervene is, is because you were nominated to be pre uh, executive vice president against Wayne right. uh, and that you have uh plans to effectively try and take over the organization yourself uh through some of these legal maneuverings how do you respond to to the to what they've argued yeah that's that's really pretty pretty funny um so i was i was nominated and really um um i didn't believe we had any chance of me being elected as evp it really we wanted to put someone out there so that the board members had a choice you know because wayne had not been opposed in this election process for I guess as long as he's been the EVP, which is I think is over 20 years. So um, I think we I got a couple of votes, but that was really more of a protest vote. It, re it had really no chance of, of of winning. I don't want to take over the NRA. I, I'm just trying to be a voice for for the members, and um, and and that's the reason I got in, involved in the intervention. But I'm I'm I was hopeful too that I could I could convince the board we need to make a change, but that that just couldn't happen. The board was not willing to make those changes, but. Um, if someone else wants to take over the NRA and run it and manage it correctly, I'll be the first person supporting them because um, we need to make some changes. The officers need to go. Wayne needs to go. Um, other, some of the executives need to be removed as well. 
Um, changes need to happen. And if the members will get engaged, maybe that will make that happen. Uh, if not, hopefully the courts will fix this over time. So you've mentioned there that there's still issues ongoing with the way the NRA is run, uh, even during your time on the board after many of the main allegations from this case uh, had taken place. What They've also had issues with retaining directors and officers insurance, which provides right. liability coverage for people who are on boards like the NRA board uh, and make decisions for how the group can be run or should be run uh, because they, they have a fiduciary responsibility, which means they could be sued personally uh, over how s some of these decisions play out. And that's what DNO insurance is meant to protect against and just in right. case there is a lawsuit like that given at least in your view that the they're still making a lot of decisions that uh are not correct or could be questioned in court at a later time how how has the board reacted to the loss of their dno insurance what kind of risks uh, do you believe as somebody who was on the board are associated with serving on this board today or in the last couple of years and, and how, how, how's the rest of the board view, view those risks? Okay. It's, it's unfortunate that I don't think that the board members fully understand their role as a fiduciary and they don't understand what DNO insurance really is and why it's so important. Um, the real, the board has been kind of quiet about the whole issue. Um, the, Insurance carrier, which was Lloyd's of London, was was the DNO insurance provider for the NRA. They dropped the NRA because the risk was too high, um, so they just dropped the, the, the you know the NRA as a as a customer. The NRA went out and it, initially they said they were going to do a, um, a kind of a self insurance. They were going to set aside monies that would could be used for possible DNO coverage. Well, I don't think that ever came to, to any, type, any type of fruition. Um, then they went out and pieced together uh, several insurance carriers to, to get a very expensive DNO policy. Um, there's several problems with that. The first one is the DNO policy has still not been provided to the board. I had to, I requested that from the, from the, um, uh, the NRA and they refused to give it to me. I even got an attorney involved to try to force them to give me a copy as a director it's so I could see that they wouldn't provide it. Um, what did they I say actually, for why they wouldn't provide? Well, it? they said it's confidential. They said, they said it was confidential information. And I said, I'm a director. You can't keep the policy that's supposed to cover me confidential for me, you know? And so they just said, well, we're not going to release that. And um, I actually did see it recently. Um, I think the Russian hackers posted it on a website that I, I read and I was able to finally read it for the very first time. But it's a it's the the, po the problem with the policy, it only starts uh, this year. Any anything that has occurred prior to this policy is not covered. So if there was any kind of fiduciary failing by the board prior to this policy starting, there is no coverage. And I don't I don't think they understand that. Uh, and if I was on, serving on the board in those difficult years, you know, prior to 2020. Uh, I think there's some financial exposure there that they they could be at risk, and I don't think they appreciate that. Uh, right, and, and so I, I guess uh, 
what do you view as the exposure? I guess uh, take, for instance, the bankruptcy filing that costs the organization tens of millions of dollars to do. It was unsuccessful. It was uh, widely viewed to be a Hail Mary move that didn't have much chance of success. Could, right. could the board members be sued it personally uh, if, for instance, current leadership is no longer in charge of the NRA? Because wouldn't the NRA have to sue? They, they'd be the, the party that was you know, affected by these poor decisions, right? So I, I guess, can you explain a little bit of how you view the this uh, these board members being personally liable and maybe yeah, so, bankruptcy so, as an example. Yeah, so so let's assume that the um, the courts find that the management these accusations are all true. Well, at that point, the uh, New York AG can try to claw back all of the the monies that were spent in a, let's say, a fraudulent manner or spent in a, in a, in a way that was inappropriate or illegal. Um, so the, the New York AG can, can try to uh, claw back those monies. Also, individual lawsuits can be filed against board of director members and make them personally liable for those funds because the board is the oversight. That's why the board is so important. It's the, it's the governing body to make sure that your management and the board is operating within the law. If you violate that and you knowingly violate those responsibilities or ignore your responsibilities as a fiduciary and, and claiming it, you know, ignorance is not a valid claim. You can't claim I didn't know. Or, or the, the whole position of being on the board of directors is you either know or you should have known. There is no, well, I didn't know, therefore I'm not liable. No, you're liable. When you accept to be on this board, you are liable that's why you need you need DNO insurance to, to protect you. Since they don't have DNO insurance policies, then the board members could be you know sued you know individually for whatever claims that may be out there for the misuse of the monies. And I guess in your mind, uh, something like the bankruptcy, where effectively the that was decided without any input from the board members, but the board members later went back and retroactively approved it, uh, and then even I think was it. Probably a third of the board didn't even show up to that meeting or vote on the Correct. resolution. Correct. Uh, those people have perhaps significant exposure for that decision. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I think, well, it's for not only that decision, but really for lots of decisions. So, I mean, even if you go way back, I mean, a lot of the board members that are still there approved a lot of the transactions that occurred that are now showing up in this lawsuit. So, you know, things like contracts for you know, individuals, contracts for board members, contracts for officers and fam family members of officers, all that has some of that process through the boards, especially through the committees, like the audit committee. Uh, those are some, there's some personal liability there. And uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens moving forward, because I'm hoping that those monies that were misspent or misused, that they, the NRA has an opportunity to get those back. And the board of directors may have some liability there for sure. Interesting. All right. So you're no longer on the board and Correct. the intervention that you, that you attempted in New York has failed. So what do you view as your role moving forward in this effort to uh, reform the NRA? Yeah. So I'm going to try to get, to get involved with the, uh, the, the members and, um, and try to be a, a voice to just kind of continue to, to point out the problems that exist with the NRA and hopefully 
you know, if the members will rise up and um, take back their NRA, maybe there's an opportunity that we can solve some of these problems. So I'm going to try to be a voice in that regard and, um, and hope that we can, can change it going forward. Okay. And uh, of course we're always open to having other NRA board members with a different point of view or members of NRA leadership from, you know, Wayne LaPierre on down onto the show to have uh, the same discussion with them. Uh, of course, we, we would love that. Uh, it's an open invitation to, to anyone who's, who's interested, but we really appreciate uh, you making some time for us and, and giving us a rundown of your experience on the board and, and your point of view on all this as well. Uh, <clears throat> hopefully we can have you back on again, perhaps in the near future when we have some more, you know, developments in this New York case or things that are going on with the NRA, because you obviously have uh, some some real world experience on on the inside of the organization's board. So uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on uh, with us, Rocky. Stephen, glad glad to be here. And, and I'll, I'll be glad to, to answer any questions you have in the future. Just give me a shout. Wonderful. All right. It's time for the weekly news update. Uh, we got a couple big stories uh, surrounding the Supreme Court. Uh, Joe Biden just announced his preferred nominee to replace Justice Breyer's seat. And Steve, you wrote a couple of pieces about what that might look like in terms of the ramifications for guns. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's big news, right? I mean, uh, there's been a lot of news lately. You know, we, we just uh, had uh, one of the former NRA board members on to talk about the big news in that case. And now the president has made a selection to fill what's going to be an open vacancy on the Supreme Court, which is a lifetime appointment, right? It's big implications for not just gun law, but all, all law <laughs> sure. in the whole country. Right, Jake. And so, uh, he made the announcement earlier this week, he's picking, um, judge Kintaji Brown Jackson, who is currently on the DC circuit court of appeals. Uh, she actually just got appointed there uh, last year. So right. it's a pretty quick upward movement for her at this point. Yeah, she she had been on the D.C. Circuit Court uh, for a number of years before that. So she's had a lot of experience uh, on the actual court, but uh, pretty fast move. Once uh, Merrick Garland became attorney general, she replaced him uh, on the appeals court. And now that Stephen Breyer, Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring. She's replacing him on the Supreme Court, or at least she's nominated to do so. And uh, interesting thing about her, right, is her record you know, on guns, right? What, what do we know about her so far? Well, uh, it kind of involves a little bit of reading of the tea leaves because we don't have a ton of concrete info on guns. She hasn't really ruled on any big gun cases. Mm -hmm. um, but the sort of evidence we do have, she at her hearing uh, with the Senate Judiciary Committee to be confirmed for that DC circuit spot, she was asked a few times about guns and, and the Heller precedent. Um, I think as you put in the piece, it was pretty routine boilerplate type answers, very professional. She said she'd be bound by Supreme Court precedent. Um, uh, so she no, nothing groundbreaking there. Um, but some interesting yeah. things about, oh, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. <laughs> I was just saying, just some, some interesting things about her background. Um, the fact that she was a career federal public defender for a long time uh, has some possibly interesting implications for how she might view guns. Um, we've mm. seen 
several instances in the last you know year or, or so from public defender organizations becoming increasingly vocal about um, gun control policies and how they see that affecting the criminal justice system. So if she shares mm-hmm. in that at all, there could be some interesting insight um, to have have that voice on the Supreme Court. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, she she said in these in these written responses to it was actually a Senator Durbin specifically, who's a Democrat, which actually made some of the questions kind of kind of fascinating because like, one of them was like, yeah. how how are you going to assure people that you're going to defend defend the Second Amendment? And this was a question from uh, the the Democrat on the Judiciary Committee right. chairman, uh, and she one of her answers is very telling on its face, at least. Because she she said specifically uh, that she did affirm the individual right to keep and bear arms is protected by the Second Amendment because that's what the precedent is under Heller. So she said this explicitly, which is interesting. Um, but the gun groups all had uh, significant reactions to this. You had the gun control groups all cheering the nomination based basically exclusively off of what president that the fact that president Biden is the one who made it right. And president Biden right. is very committed to gun control advocacy and wants to see a, a whole host of new uh, gun bans and restrictions on ownership put into place. And so effectively they're saying, uh, well, here's a, here's a quote from Chris Brown who's the president of Brady. President Biden has chosen wisely we need a justice on the court who understands that there is no daylight between the right to bear, keep and bear arms and laws that protect Americans from the threat of gun violence and a justice who understands that the effects of our laws fall on Americans differently. While we look forward to hearing from her and those who know her in confirmation hearings, it appears that Judge Brown Jackson is such a jurist. Um, and... You know, Shannon Watts from Moms Demand Action effectively said that we look forward to, quote, supporting Judge Jackson's nomination and call the Senate to swiftly confirm her because um, President Biden made this choice. So, right. And then on the other side of things, you had the NRA, which basically took the opposite approach. and, and opposes her being nominated. Uh, they said, quote, Judge uh, Kintaji Brown Jackson has never affirmed the Second Amendment protects the individual fundamental right of all Americans to keep and bear arms for the defense of themselves or others. Consequently, the NRA is concerned with President Biden's decision to nominate her to the Supreme Court of the United States at a crucial time when there are vital cases that will determine the scope and future of the Second Amendment and self-defense rights in our country. Interestingly there, kind of goes, at first it appears like it's at odds with what Jackson herself had said, because she said there was an individual right to keep and bear arms. But what the NRA means here, uh, from my discussions with them, is in her, in her quote, she's essentially saying she would uphold the precedent that the Supreme Court has already mandated. And that was in a confirmation hearing where she was going to be on the appeals court, which is subject to, you know, Supreme Court precedent. It can't, it can't just override Supreme Court precedent. Now she's going to be on the Supreme Court if she's confirmed where you can set precedent. 
Uh, and so they're they're basically saying they're not they're not comforted by those previous comments. Um, but uh, there's there's she's there's one more thing right that she did that might be interesting or somewhat telling in, in this whole uh, uh, situation, right? Uh, yeah, just the fact that she was a, a, a public defender, I think, is is fascinating enough. You saw this in uh, mm -hmm. the Firearm Policy Coalition's public statement on her nomination. Yeah. I thought they had uh, a pretty interesting statement, where it was a little different than the, the NRA or the gun control groups, where they kind mm -hmm. of inferred based on Biden's nomination what the outcome would be. Uh, FPC put out a statement. Uh, Judge Jackson, who served for a time as an assistant public defender, should have firsthand experience of just how evil and corrupt the criminal justice system is, using coercive plea bargaining to avoid constitutionally required jury trials and putting people in cages for nonviolent possessory offenses, such as merely possessing common semi-automatic firearms or carrying a handgun without a license. And then they list the states like New York and California, where they have May issue laws and they do uh, prosecute people for carrying without a license. Um, so it is kind of a fascinating uh, look at how some gun groups are reacting based on that experience. Yeah, you know, FPC seem maybe more hopeful or reserved in judgment uh, about how she might be on the court. And <clears throat> you know, part of that reason is she was asked in that same series of questions about her time as a public defender and, and whether she was um, worried about the fact that she helped people, including, quote, you know, g gun criminals. Uh, she was, Durbin referred specifically to people who had committed gun crimes in this question um, about getting them off as a, as a public defender. And she was uh, pretty forceful in her defense of public defenders and, and the role they play in the criminal justice system. Um, she said, quote, the primary concern of lawyers who work as public defenders is the same as that of the framers who crafted the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution, that in order to guarantee liberty and justice for all, the government has to provide due process to individuals it accuses of criminal behavior, including the rights to a grand jury indictment and a fair trial by a jury of one's peers and competent legal counsel to hold the government accountable for providing a fair process and otherwise assist in the preparation of a defense against the charges. The Constitution guarantees that every person who is compelled to enter into the criminal justice system by virtue of being accused of a crime will receive representation in the context of their interactions with government authorities and attorneys in the federal public defender's office perform this crucial function. So she is very defensive about her time there. She, she doesn't give in at all uh, to this line of questioning that says, basically, you helped get criminals uh, you know, out of charges. Isn't that a bad thing? And she's saying no, which could play into that view, like you mentioned, uh, of a lot of public defenders that some of the nation's gun laws are enforced in ways that are inequitable or unjust. So we don't know because she hasn't been a part of any of those groups who've spoken up on that point. Uh, but the other thing that I was going to mention is she also filed a brief uh, for the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian-leaning think tank, uh, before she was a public defender, before she was a judge. Uh, so she actually wrote a brief for a libertarian think tank. Now, right. it was on the Fourth Amendment, and in uh, or it was on uh, indefinite detention of terror suspects, right. so not gun rights, obviously. 
and I, I don't know if that how much it tells us about gun rights, but the public defender aspect and the libertarian think tank history she has, you know, that might give you some reason to think she's not necessarily going to side with the liberals in the court in gun cases all the time, at least some indication. At least shows she's uh, concerned and well aware of civil liberties concerns. Yeah. So, you know, if even if she doesn't 100% align with maybe the quote unquote pro-gun justices on the court, she might have a very different perspective just based on that background than some of the other justices. So it'll be definitely interesting to see uh, if and when the hearings uh, happen. I think they announced at the end of this month, they're going to start kicking off those hearings. Mm -hmm. um, and she'll almost certainly be asked about guns, considering there's a gun uh, case yeah. currently before the Supreme Court. <laughs> so, uh, of course, we'll be covering what she says about that when that happens. And um, yeah, definitely should be pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, it's I, I wonder if she doesn't end up kind of like a, the center left version of Neil Gorsuch. Um, you know, possibly, yeah, perhaps I'm understating her the rest of her judicial record and, uh, you know, some of the ways that she's ruled in non gun cases that put her on the short list for a Biden nominee. But, you know, Gorsuch has ruffled feathers of, uh, you know, Trump supporters, uh, despite the fact that he Trump put him on the court, uh, you know, by being a sort of more libertarian leaning uh, type of justice. And but from the center right, uh, whereas, you know, you, you, one can dream, I guess, if you're a gun rights activist, that maybe that's how <laughs> uh, Brown will turn out. But uh, Brown Jackson. But but uh I will say that it's so I have a member's piece on this looking through in more detail about, you know, how, how is she likely to rule uh, and given these things. And I will say that it's probably fair to look at how the gun groups have reacted and think that that's probably indicative, indicative, <laughs> indicative of how she'll actually rule. I mean, she's a Biden nominee. Yes, sure. a big part of her nomination was that Biden promised to nominate uh, a black woman to the court. Uh, so his priorities were maybe uh, less focused on policy outcomes. But I don't know. When you have the entire gun control movement cheering the nomination and the gun rights movement uh, jeering it, it's probably a good There's indication. probably something to that. Yeah. Yeah. We can't know, but you know, that's the thing. When justices get on the court, it's a lifetime appointment. They're not answerable to the president who put them there or the Senate that confirmed them. So there's no guarantee she's going to be as uh, favorable to the gun control arguments as the gun control groups believe she will be. But it's one of those things where you have to, we'll have to wait and see, but there are some reasons to think that Maybe it, maybe it won't turn out that way. I don't know. And people should read that members piece to find out more about some of those reasons. It's good. See, he's learning to pitch. It's a good, <laughs> he's, he's getting better at the pitches at the end of this at the end of these shows, right? Uh, and if they want to become a member, how how can listeners do that? Yeah, just go to the uh, reload.com. We've got several tiers of membership to suit your needs. We have monthly memberships. We have yearly memberships that will get you two months free. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be extra generous, we have lifetime memberships. If you really want to support what we're doing here, um, we're entirely reader funded at this point. So we definitely rely on, on you guys to help keep this going, to help provide sober, serious firearms reporting and analysis. Um, 
And if you do decide to become a member, we're grateful and you get a bunch of goodies like members pieces like the one Steve just wrote about Judge Brown Jackson. Uh, you'll also get this podcast a day early and you will get a special weekend Sunday newsletter. So mm-hmm. I definitely encourage you to check out those membership options and uh, help us out. Yes, the members make this all possible. So we're, we are forever grateful and we hope to have more of you soon. <laughs> so anyway, that's it for this week. We'll see you guys again uh, next week. Then.